0: standing for the sermon text this morning, which is uh, in Philippians chapter 4, and we want to read verses 10 through 20, Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the Gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in, in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account but I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, indeed, glory be to you. We thank you that you have redeemed men for yourself from all over the world, and that you have all kinds and peoples that you have bought with a price, and you have caused us to draw near from all ages, male and female. You have called a church that you have foreknown from eternity from before the foundation of the world. And we thank you that you have united us together in Christ that we may be one new man in Him. We thank you for this identity that you have given us. We thank you for the peace that we can have to know that we belong to you and that you also, as a great privilege, you belong to us as our God. Make us now to be your servants in all the ways that you command. Make us attentive to what we should be caring for. Cause our care to flourish in all the ways that please you. Make your people to give genuinely to the causes that are of chiefest concern to you. And we ask you this morning that you would ready our hearts as a field that is fertile. Ready to receive your word to work it upon us ready to bear forth fruit in Christ Jesus, so that we are filled with the fruits of righteousness that are by him to your glory and praise. We ask for your spirit to work this fruitfulness in us. In Christ's name. Amen. 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 Please be seated. Expository preaching is the discipline of picking a text of Scripture and preaching what we call a textual sermon. You preach a sermon that is about that text. So a church that wants to preach expository sermons is is a church in which the pastor does not show up to talk about whatever's on his heart. It is a church where there's a discipline of choosing a text. And from that text, it is exposited. The minister from that text puts forth what that text says in explanation, in explication. Now, we are a church that values expository preaching, but not just expository preaching. Expository preaching can be done from any text. It could be randomized. In this church, what we value is consecutive expository preaching. That is, preaching that marches through complete books of the Bible. Now, that's not to say that there's anything wrong when we do pick a text that is a topical sermon. To be in favor of expository preaching does not mean that we cannot also have topical sermons where we speak to a need or where there's not any current series. We can do that and we have done that. But there is a premium on the discipline of going straight through the Scriptures. And one of the blessings of that is that you get to cover all the matters that the Scripture addresses, Lord willing, in the proportions that the Scripture addresses them. So it keeps us balanced. And it also keeps the pastor from harping on topics that are his uh, hobby horses or pet peeves. I know I've told you before that uh, if a minister does not have a program or a schedule that is uh, consecutive expository preaching, he will end up talking about about the same five things over and over again. So we value this discipline. It is called the Lectio Continua. Latin for continual reading. So we go to the next text after we cover one passage. A lot of times this is verse by verse, but not always. Sometimes we have uh, a sermon on multiple verses. Sometimes there's multiple sermons on one verse. But the point is we... We don't want to dodge anything that the scripture brings up. Well, here, the text will require of us a sermon on giving. We are looking especially today at verses 10 and verses 14 through 18 of Philippians chapter 4. And in this part of the letter, we have almost a self contained letter where Paul is thanking the Philippians for their gift to him. They have been generous toward him, he's in prison. They sent him a care package through Epaphroditus. Now he is using Epaphroditus as his mailman to deliver back this letter to the Philippians as a thank you note. He is thanking them for what they have given. So the text requires of us a sermon on this point. I want us to remember how Philippians begins. In chapter 1, verses 3-5, through Paul commends the Philippians like this. I thank my God on every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making all requests, excuse me, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. The phrase I want to seize upon is in verse five. Their fellowship in the gospel. The Greek word is koinonia. It means a participation in, a sharing in or a fellowship in. So the Philippians participated in the Gospel with Paul. Well, today in chapter 4, we have more light on what that participation looked like. It was a partnership. It included a financial partnership. And he says it explicitly in verse 15. If you'll look there in chapter 4 at verse 15. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the Gospel, when I left Macedonia... No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Some commentators say that that phrase, giving and receiving, is exactly the commercial business language of New Testament Greek. They say, in fact, these would be the words that you use in accounting for debits and credits. The Philippians gave to Paul Paul received from them. This is a matter of giving and receiving. Our text today is a sweep over verses 10-18. through And then in future weeks, we plan to study the contentment and spend several weeks in the contentment that Paul says that he has as he qualifies his thanksgiving in this letter. It is important for us to learn the secret that Paul has learned of contentment. We'll have much to say about that But before we can address his contentment, we have to address what prompted him to talk about contentment. And that was the kindness of the Philippians in sending him a gift. So you'll remember Epaphroditus from chapter 2. He was the one that the Philippians chose to deliver this care package. He traveled probably about a thousand miles from Philippi all the way over to Rome. Where Paul was in prison. And as he traveled, um, I suppose when he got there, he got very sick. He nearly died. God mercifully healed him. And then Paul is now sending him back uh, with the hopes that Timothy will also shortly come. So when we come to a text like this, we have to teach what it says. We have to teach this passage full bore, just like we teach any other passage full bore. Now, I say this because some churches teach on giving very often. They beat a dead horse. It may be Stewardship Sunday every third Sunday. There may be monthly messages on giving, quarterly messages on giving where the people feel hounded always to get out their pocketbook. Now, their abuse of the doctrine of giving is not a reason for A biblically sound church to boycott the doctrine of giving just because other churches and other pastors harp on this doctrine too often is not a reason for us to make too little of it or for us to neglect it it's the clear teaching of Scripture and we must come to it in due course and so we are in our due course on this topic of giving now say, so furthermore, one of the things that makes it difficult to approach this topic in particular is that sometimes church leaders who teach on this subject can be accused of self-dealing. It might be the frequency that they bring it up. It might be that their exhortations reveal that they have unrealistic, burdensome expectations on the people. It might be that their lifestyle suggests opulence. It may be that their encouragements to give sound more like salesmanship. There could be any number of reasons why this is difficult to address at times. But we just finished a text in Philippians chapter 4, verse, verses, verse 9, where he says we are to imitate Him. Whatever we saw or heard in Him, whatever we received from Him, this we should do as well. But what's He doing now? Verses 10 through 20, he's writing a thank you letter as a thank you for a gift. The Philippians were generous to him and gave, so he is thanking them. And now we need to follow his example in discussing the biblical doctrine of giving. Now, in Paul's case, he was so zealous for the gospel and zealous, especially for the fruit that the gospel would bear in people that when money matters arose in the church, his top concern was for others instead of himself. When Paul spoke about money in the church, his top concern was for others rather than himself. So instead of self-dealing, he engaged in the gospel virtue of self-denial. Instead of enriching himself, Paul was concerned for the gospel to advance. He maintained a concern for the poor. And he was concerned for fruit to abound in the giver to the glory of God. So for that reason, we need to take up the topic of giving with all those same concerns. Now Paul understood how carefully he must speak when he acknowledged the Philippians' gift to him. He tries very hard not to be misunderstood. He wants to show gratitude without ingratiating himself. He will thank the, the Philippians. He'll acknowledge their financial partnership with Him. He will encourage them and compliment them. But in between these encouragements and these acknowledgements and these thanksgivings, He will cycle back to qualifications. He will hedge His thanks lest they think that He's soliciting for more. Lest they think that He is insatiable and greedy and covetous And that He's buttering them up because He knows what side His bread's buttered on. And He just wants them to be even more generous to Him so that He can milk them for more. Lest they think that, He's going to go back and forth. He will alternate between letting them know how refreshed He was for their gift. How He rejoices greatly in the Lord that they gave it. And yet, for them not to think that they should give any more. For them not to think that they should give under a compulsion, compulsion. He, he labors and endeavors that they not think that He's in need. He tells them that He has learned a great secret. The secret of contentment. He will not exploit them. He is like Samuel. He is like Moses. They said, whose donkey did I steal? They didn't take anything from any man. It was all given to the Lord and it was all given voluntarily and Paul wants to be exactly the same kind of leader in the church. He goes out of his way not to prey upon the Philippians. So because of this alternation, we can group together some of these verses as a thing, and that's what we'll do today as we look specifically at verse 10 and then verses 14 through 18. I want us to remember that Paul is genuinely concerned for the Philippians how rare those kind of men are. He, he had very few men in his entourage that were like that. He said, as a matter of fact, it's really only Timothy that is just like me in not seeking his, his own interests, but in those of Jesus Christ. He said that in this letter. Remember Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 19. He says, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy shortly unto you that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state, for I have no man Like minded, who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. But you know the proof of Him, that as a Son with the Father, He has served with me in the gospel. Him, therefore, I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see how it will be with me. We see that Paul is genuinely caring for the Philippians. He really wants what is best for them. So he won't send just any old man that is being discipled under him to go take care of the Philippians. Only Timothy will do because only Timothy is of a similar soul, literally, as Paul. Only Timothy is genuinely concerned for the Philippians' well-being. Now you'll remember in the opening of Philippians, this letter in chapter 1, Paul talks about those who have very poor motives in preaching the Gospel. They preach out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. And judging from how he describes it elsewhere in his letters, probably also for financial gain. But Paul made it a point never to try to turn a profit on preaching the Word of God. What we can say about Paul is is that he was not uninterested in the Philippians' giving, but he was very disinterested in their giving. Now this is... Uh, a more archaic distinction between two words that's sort of fallen out of use in English. But if you look up these two words in the dictionary, uh, there is still a distinction. And it does still make a difference which word you choose. With usage, it's getting blurred. But there's a big difference between the word uninterested and the word disinterested. And oftentimes this is illustrated with the example of an umpire. You do not want an umpire in a baseball game who is uninterested. He cannot tell you the count of balls and strikes. Why? He's not paying attention. He's uninterested. He could care less. He might, know, he might not know what inning you're in. He didn't look at the play at second to know if the player was safe. So on and so forth, because he's uninterested. You don't want that kind of ump. You want an umpire who is disinterested though, and that is an umpire who doesn't care who wins. All he wants to do is to follow the rule book. He is about fair dealing. He's not betting on which team wins. He doesn't have a dog in the fight or a horse in the race. He is disinterested. That's the sort of missionary and the sort of planting pasture that Paul was. He was very interested in their giving, extremely interested in it. He taught on it with the Holy Spirit's inspiration and and yet not so that he could not so that he could be enriched, not for him to profit. You'll remember that Paul was unique among the, among the uh, ordained ministers, among the apostles he was unique in that he was a tent maker. He strove to go off of his, as, as little support from the churches as he could. Now he did take some support from them but he explains it in 1 Corinthians 9 he says essentially, His singleness probably played into it. He was able to actually not take money from the churches or only here and there to do it, but instead to make a living for himself, working with his own hands. Now he says there, a minister should make his living by the Gospel just as the priests are fed by the sacrifices, just as a farmer works the field and gets gets the crops, just as an oxen threshes out the corn, and should be able to eat it at the same time. He says ministers of the Gospel should make their living of the Gospel. But that was, a, that was a right he had that he denied to himself for the uniqueness of his own calling. But no one can say about Paul that he was uninterested in the Philippians' giving. And everyone should be able to see that he was also disinterested. You'll notice in verse 10 that he is rejoicing in the Lord. His joy is not a selfish joy that he's received a care package. It is a godly joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it's actually a mega joy. He uses an adverb to describe the way in which he rejoices. It's the word megalos. We get our prefix mega from it. This is a great rejoicing in the Lord. Moises Silva points out how the theme of Philippians is rejoicing. Many times in this letter, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. So he commands God's people to rejoice. So Silva picks up with that theme and he says, it's as if Paul interacts with the Philippians and says, you know how I've been telling you to rejoice? Now I rejoice. And right on the heels of saying, follow my example and everything. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly at your gift to me. The Philippians could not break him out of jail. They could not undo his arrest. But they could encourage him with a gift. And that they did. And they did what they could. And Paul rejoiced in the Lord greatly for it. Now the imagery that Paul uses is that of a tree coming into season. A tree budding and coming into bloom. He says there in verse 10 of Philippians chapter 4. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly now that at last you have revived your concern for me. This is a flourishing of a branch. This is a revival of a tree that has gone dormant and given forth its fruit. So he uses an image that is frequent in the Scripture for godly people. You'll remember that uh, back in Psalm 1, the psalmist says that the godly man meditates in God's Word day and night, He shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water. He shall bring forth His fruit in His season. His leaf also shall not wither. Almost exactly picking up on those verses, Jeremiah chapter 17 picks up with that image of the righteous man as a tree and again describes Him as bearing forth fruit and sprouting forth a bloom of leaves. So trees bloom in an orderly pattern by seasons, usually like clockwork. But here was something a bit unusual. Paul says at the end of verse 10, Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. It, it literally means it was not their season. That's, that's the word there for lacking opportunity. They always cared about Paul. They were always loving him and concerned about him, but there was not an opportunity. There was not a season for a period of time for them to show care for Him like they had been doing. And some commentators have inferred from this that there could have been a a sizable period of time that elapsed between their last care package to Paul and this one that presently came by Epaphroditus. But we don't know that for sure. But it would seem to be indicated. So Paul commends their, their flourishing care uh, he encourages them with uh, imagery we see throughout the Bible, including by Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 7, verse 18. A good tree cannot bear forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. So just as individuals in the church will be either good trees or bad trees, churches will be either good trees or bad trees. And we will be either a fertile field for the Lord or an infertile field. And here Paul commends the Philippians with this imagery of, of a tree coming back into season. They are like that. They are a church that has recognized their season to give, and they have done it faithfully. So Paul commends them. Well, from here I want to pivot a bit, and instead of speaking exactly about the Philippian church, I'd like to zoom out a bit and talk about the Macedonian region. Philippi was one city within Macedonia. Along with it was the church at Thessalonica and the church at Berea. So this was a region within Greece that Paul felt called to. Remember, he saw the vision in Acts 16, a man saying, Paul, come help us. And it was it was the Macedonian vision, the vision that the Holy Spirit was calling Paul to go into the regions of Macedonia to preach the gospel. So I want to talk a little bit about these churches and what we can say, the flavor that they had from elsewhere in Paul's writings. We have in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 a discussion about these churches. So listen as I read the first seven verses of 2 Corinthians 8. Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in the severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now I want to say that this is descriptive of the churches of Macedonia, of which we know there would be at least three that Paul planted. There would be the church at Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Now, he's commending all of them when he talks in a broad brush stroke about the churches from that region. But we can pair together what we hear today from chapter 4 to learn a little bit more about how the Philippians excelled among the churches of Macedonia. Verse 15, Paul says, You yourselves know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Paul's still in Macedonia when he's preaching in Thessalonica. And yet the Thessalonians left something to be desired in what he needed. The Philippians from elsewhere in Macedonia, they sent to Paul's needs while he was in Thessalonica. So among the churches in Macedonia, The Philippians had a name, a reputation for giving. Now, the giving that he praises in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is a giving to the poor in Jerusalem. The saints at Jerusalem have become persecuted, the Jews are persecuting them, and many hardships have befallen them. So, Paul was concerned for the poor and this was an offering being taken up not for the ministry it was not for Paul's mission work it was not it was not for him and his disciple uh, companions with him it was for the poor saints at Jerusalem and and Paul says that these saints in Macedonia were begging for the chance to have the privilege of contributing to the needs of the poor saints in Jerusalem he says that they gave as they had means to give. But he said, really, it was more than that. Really, it was quite sacrificial. They really gave more than what they had. More than their means. Not not more than what they had. More than their means. Beyond their means, he says. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Now, how did they do this? Paul tells us at the beginning of 2 Corinthians 8, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. When God's people go to giving, that is a dispensation of the grace of God upon them. If God's people give, that is because God's grace was at first at work upon them. And as a result of His grace in them, they give. And and they look for the privilege of giving. They learn what what Jesus said, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so they are eager for the chance to give. Now, he tells us a little bit more about this secret of giving generously. He says in verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 8 about their giving. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. In the grace of God, these Macedonians had been brought to the Lord and from belonging to the Lord. That was what taught them what needs there were that they should be on the lookout for, to give to, and to contribute to. And they were eagerly on the lookout for that, to give it. The other thing that we'll note about the Macedonians is that they were in extreme poverty. That's what the text says. Second Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 2. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. What we can say from this is that Macedonia was a region that had been decimated by civil war. Economically, it had not recovered from uh, conflict in previous generations. That was one reason that the Arians struggled so much. So this would be true of Philippi as well. The Philippians would not have been a wealthy congregation, not by this testimony of what was true generally of the region of Macedonia in which Philippi was located. So they did not have a lot of means, and yet they were very generous And this teaches us a principle about how God values generosity. Remember what Jesus says about the the widow that gives her mites. He says she gave more than these other people that had more means. Perhaps the wealthy. Perhaps nominally they gave more, but in fact this widow gave more because she gave from all her living, from what she needed. Uh, She gave sacrificially, that is. In the 2006 song from down here, Little is Much, they talk about how God views our giving and uh, us offering ourselves first to the Lord that then He would use us. Listen to the words of their song. He says, the authors say, What is the measure of a life well lived if all I can offer seems too small to give? This is a song for the weaker, the poorer, and so-called failures. Little is much when God's in it. And no one can fathom the plans He holds. Little as much when God's in it, He changes the world with the seeds we sow. Little as much, little as much. Consider a kingdom in the smallest seed. Consider that giants fall to stones and slings. Consider a child in a manger. Consider the story isn't over. What can be done with what you still have? So, by their example, this poor little church in Philippi contributed to Paul's mission work and to the needs of suffering saints in Jerusalem. And they did that because they had first given themselves to the Lord. And little was much. We'll talk about that in a moment. But first, let me quote from Proverbs chapter 30, verses 24 to 28. There be four things which are little upon the earth, but they are exceeding wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they prepare their meat in the summer. The conies are but a feeble folk, yet they make their houses in the rocks. The locusts have no king, yet they go forth, all of them by bands. The spider, or other versions, have the lizard, you may grasp with the hands, yet is in king's palaces. Here the, the author is remarking at how little things actually have a lot of leverage to them in in certain situations according to what God has willed. And what I want you to think about for the church here at Philippi is that in their poverty, in their extreme severe affliction, the little that they gave was very much. And this is what I want you to think about. Why did Paul write Philippians? To thank the Philippians for their gift. That is to say that the church has been shaped by the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi for centuries, for millennia now, because, almost millennia, because of the little giving that was much of that church in Philippi. And not only that, but we hear from what Paul tells the Corinthians that he had to rob other churches in order to carry out a ministry in Corinth. He says explicitly he had to plunder other churches in order to have a ministry in Corinth. Now, what should that make you think? That perhaps without the support of the Macedonian churches, which he specifically says in Corinthians, it was the Macedonian churches that provided for this. Without the the help of the Macedonian churches, perhaps we would not have extant the letters of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Now all of this is according to God's providence. The Lord has willed for us to have Philippians and 1st and 2nd Corinthians. It is Scripture that is God-breathed and He can give it to us by any means that He seems fit. But it just so happens there is a good likelihood in the way that the Lord had it to fall out that it was the partnership of this church at Philippi as well as the rest of the churches in Macedonia that made it possible for us to have this letter today and for it to bear the fruit that it's born in our lives. And not only that, but perhaps in good measure, the letters to the church at Corinth. Think about that. Think about how the Lord made little to be much. Somewhere between 3 to 5 percent of churchgoers are tithers, meaning 3 to 5 percent of people who go to church give one-tenth of their annual increase to further gospel ministry. Now, of those that do tithe, here's here's how it goes. You might expect that of, of those who do tithe, that most of them would be upper class or middle class. But in a study on tithing and on giving, the research found that those of low incomes were eight times more likely to tithe Than those of middle incomes. I think it illustrates for us what James says in James chapter 2, verse 5: Has not God chosen the poor in this earth to be rich in faith? And so he has. We can see this. And the Lord makes little to be much, he is the one that makes us fruitful. Now we can see about Paul. That when he spoke about giving, what he desired was that people would have fruit, an increase, a yield or a dividend to their account. And we get that directly from the text there in verse 17. Paul says, not that I seek the gift itself. Here's one of his qualifications. He's hedging a bit. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. Now, it's literally fruit. That's the Greek word is fruit. But this word was a business term that that was like their word that we have for a yield or a dividend. It's a return on an investment. Paul says, I'm not seeking that you would give me things and that you would enrich me. What would be far better is that you would have a ledger in heaven that has a yield to it, that has dividends accruing to it, that you would be accumulating heavenly gains. That is what matters to me. And that is why I'm commending you and encouraging you to give. And we should all remember what the Lord said. That that there's no one that gives as little a thing as a glass of water to, to one of the ministers of the Gospel that will not have His reward in heaven. None of that will be overlooked by the omniscient God. He sees it all and He will abundantly... Reward it and bless it. Paul's not afraid to talk about the incentive. There is a heavenly incentive to our gift. The Lord will reward it and bless it. It's along the lines of what Solomon says in Proverbs 19, verse 17. He that has pity upon the poor lends to the Lord, and that which he has given will he pay him again. Well, this is giving to the poor. And Solomon says, when When you give to poor people, God doesn't forget that. God keeps a ledger of that. He remembers that. And not because you've merited it, but strictly out of His grace. He will abundantly reward the grace that He initially gave you to make you want to give. Because you only have the initiative to give by the grace of God. It was the grace of God stirring within you that caused you to pity the poor or the grace of God stirring within you that caused you to tithe or that caused you to offer. And to that there will be a heavenly reward. The hymn, O Lord of Heaven and Earth and Sea, by Christopher Wordsworth, has these lines. We lose what on ourselves we spend. We have as treasure without end. Whatever, Lord, to Thee we lend, who givest us all. It's important for us to remember that the Lord gives all. He has given to us everything that we have. In fact, He owns us. We are bought with a price. We are not our own, and neither is our money. Our money is not our own. Perhaps you had other plans with your life before you were saved. But now you're saved and you understand the Lord has plans for your life. Or well, you had other plans for your money, too, before you were saved. And now those in Christ understand now the Lord has plans for your money as well. And you are are commanded to give yourself to Him first. That's the pattern. Give yourself to Him first and then by the will of God, give as He leads you by His grace. The other thing that Paul teaches in the Book of Corinthians about giving is that God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. It was said of John Wesley that when he bestowed a gift or uh, served anyone, that he would lift his hat as though he were the one that was getting something. He was the one that would acknowledge it was better to give than to receive. Uh, That's you know, we, we we talk about someone having hat in hand. Uh, John Wesley would take hat in hand because he realized when he gave to someone else that was the reality of the heavenly ledger of his fruit that Paul calls it increasing he had fruit increasing in heaven as he gave you've heard of the, the famous missionary William Carey I think he's called the father of modern missions he was he was a missionary to India and uh, he, he was used by the Lord to bring the gospel there and to found that great movement of the, I believe it was the early 1700s. Well, he had supporters that would help him along. One was a pastor named Andrew Fuller. Andrew Fuller was, was called William Carey's, uh, his rope holder. And the reason he was called his rope holder is that before William Carey left for India, he said to William Fuller, I will go down to the pit if you will hold the ropes. So uh, that was the partnership that, William, that uh, Andrew Fuller was to have with William Carey. So Andrew Fuller would go about seeking funds in order to give to these causes. He visited a, nobleman, a nobleman's house and he stayed for a few days to visit with this man and to share with him that he felt that it would be a good thing to participate in a financial partnership uh, in in these missions that were going on. And after a few days, uh, I want to read you what happened. The nobleman with some hesitation gave him a, get, a guinea. Observing the indifference of the donor, Mr. Fuller looked him in the face with much gravity and said, Does this donation, sir, come from your heart? If it does not, I wish not to receive it. The nobleman was melted and overcome with This honest frankness and taking from his purse 10 guineas more said, There, sir, these come from my heart. This is the difference in giving cheerfully and in giving reluctantly or giving under compulsion. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones said this if we really believe the gospel, then we must believe that nothing is more important in the world today than the propagation of that gospel. That should be our greatest concern. People who really believe in the Lord and love Him are those who know something of that constraining power which makes them to say, I can do no other, for God loveth a cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 7. Well, this approach to giving can only come by the grace of God. It's the grace of God that leads us to give so that we say, like Martin Lloyd-Jones says, I can do no other. And, and you see the cost-benefit analysis no other way than to say, why would I not give in this amount, for this purpose, at this opportunity? Why would I not give knowing about the heavenly ledger? When you do the cost-benefit analysis that way, That's how you know that you're giving cheerfully. You're giving from the heart. So if the gospel is our greatest concern, then we must finance the ministry of the gospel. It's like Paul said in Romans chapter 10, starting at verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So, so far, Paul declares the doctrine of justification by faith alone. With your heart... You, believe. you are justified when you believe. For the Scripture, he goes on in verse 11, For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call, call on Him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Now if we pause there for a moment, with that being true, Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Shouldn't we want there to be more and more people who call upon the name of the Lord? Shouldn't we love the gospel to go forth in faraway lands that people of all tribes, tongues, and nations would be saved when they confess with their mouth and believe in their heart? Well, then he goes on in verse 14. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And so all of us who love this Gospel, All of us who have been overcome by the Gospel and saved by this Gospel of God's grace, we will have God's grace at work in us to give to the propagation of it. To desire to see more and more people believe in their heart and confess Jesus as Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your grace which is abundant toward us in Jesus Christ. We thank You for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for our sakes He became poor, that we through His poverty might become rich. Thank You for making us rich, Father. Thank You that You have made us wealthy in Christ. Thank You that we have godliness, which is of great gain, not only in this life, but also in the life that is to come. We thank You, Father, for how many things You bless us with here. Lands and fields, brothers and sisters, houses, so many things you have given us here, and persecutions with it. And also, Father, an inheritance reserved for us in heaven that fades not away, that neither moth nor rust can destroy. We thank you, Father, for the heavenly ledger. And we thank you that you have heaped up grace upon grace, that you save us by your grace, and by grace you reward those whom You have saved by Your grace. So we thank You for this double gift and we ask that we would learn these lessons of giving, that You would teach us by Your grace. Work in this, Father, that we would please You in all things for Your glory and that the Word would go forth and abound and that there would be beautiful feet to those who proclaim the good news. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand to worship the Lord with your red hymnals? The hymn is number 585. 585, take my life and let it be.